right, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. We'll finish out the chapter this evening. I trust you had a good afternoon, you got some rest, and uh, come back here recharged. Hopefully that's the case for you. I actually got a half hour nap today, so I feel all this energy uh, tonight. So that means I'm going to go longer or shorter. I don't know which one it is. We'll find out here uh, soon. Uh, This morning, uh, we discussed uh, Paul's theological discussion or treatment of the value of knowledge and the limitation of knowledge in matters of Christian liberty or debate. And we saw that in that section, Paul ended with a powerful claim that believers must live for God. We exist for him. We also learned that knowing and pleasing God are our ultimate purposes in life. And so, uh, since that is the case, we must consider how we can please God, even in matters of Christian liberty. And finally, we also learned this morning that the scriptures themselves must be our guide, and that we must be willing at times, since any one of us can be wrong, to realign our views and our opinions with the scripture just like uh, the illustration that I used uh, of the bathroom scale. As we come uh, to this section of the book, Paul gets intensely practical, and he describes the Corinthian situation in some detail. In this section, he's going to emphasize the importance of love for us. Now, what I would like to do this evening, just so that we can go quickly through the text, is I want to take the verses just a little bit out of sequence. Now, normally I don't do this, but for the two points I have this evening, I'd like to look first at verse 8, then go back to verse 7 and and take care of the rest of the passage at that point. So I have two points this evening. Uh, My first point is that uh, foundationally, the issue that the Corinthians were arguing about, the meat offered to idols, was an issue that was not at its foundational level, a sin issue. Okay, so look with me in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Paul says this, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. First, I want to submit to you that the Corinthians were not arguing over something that was necessarily moral. It was amoral. Okay, they're arguing over something that was not intrinsically or inherently sinful in and of itself. In other words, this is just meat that they're arguing about. That's what's on the table. Okay, it's a lump of protein or muscle mass or something. It's just meat. We might say in our modern language today, it is an amoral thing. I think that's what Paul means when he says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God, we're no better No worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. I think Paul makes a similar point in another text about this in Romans chapter 14, verse 14. You could write down the reference and look at it this week. But Romans 14, 14, Paul says this. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing, no thing, is unclean in and of itself. Of itself. That's what Paul says in Romans 14, 14. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. 
Now, I want to make a point about verse 8 here in a moment, but before I do that, I have to lay out a few definitions for us to consider, because if we don't do this, we're going to be kind of talking around each other. I guess I'll be talking around you, and you won't understand uh, perhaps what I'm saying. So there are two sets of definitions I want to give you. First, what is legalism? What is legalism? And uh, I want to emphasize the fact, I think, that there are two ways this term can be used. First, in the, in, in the first century, legalism was the belief that obedience to the law of Moses was required for proper standing with God. So in a purest form, when you talk about legalism in the first century, it was the belief that some people had that you had to obey the law of Moses in order to gain right standing with God. We saw this this morning in Acts chapter 15. When Paul goes down to Jerusalem, there were some some believers there, some Jewish believers of the school of the Pharisees who were saying that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. They were legalists. Okay, and so there are some that argued that way in the first century. Legalism, however, has also come to be used in this way. Later, legalism was used to describe adding any works, not just works of the law, but any works as necessary for one's proper or right standing with God. And even to this day, sometimes we use the term legalism this way. I don't know how much we think about how we use it, but sometimes today we can claim that someone is legalistic. Oh, he's so legalistic. And what we mean by that is not that they're adding works to salvation or anything, not that they're adding the works of the law. It's just they're more conservative than we are. Okay, so legalism can mean these two things. Okay, there's another term I want to define for you, and that is what is Christian liberty or Christian freedom? Again, I think there are two ways of using this term. I think both can be appropriate. First, Christian liberty can speak of the believer's liberty or freedom from attempts to merit salvation through obedience to the law of Moses. Okay, and especially in the first century in the scriptures, you will see that uh, Christian liberty or freedom spoke originally of not having to follow Moses' law in order to be accepted by God or in order to be saved. So this speaks of things like Sabbaths, feast days, circumcisions, and so on. That's Christian liberty. But secondly, I want to argue that liberty also involves this. Christian liberty also came to describe, and this is a long definition from a friend of mine, Sam Horn. It's from his dissertation. So I will try to make sense out of it though. Okay, so look at it with me. He says, Christian liberty would be in reference to those areas, elements, or practices of the Christian life that are not prohibited as negative actions nor mandated as positive actions in the scripture, either by express statement or by reasonable implication. Man, what in the world is that all about? What is this describing? He's arguing here that Christian liberty can also be used of freedom in what we would call gray areas. Gray areas, ever heard of that before? That makes a little bit more sense, right? Areas where the scriptures don't come right out clearly and condemn the practice. You can't, you know, thou shalt not do this. Or, uh, in some ways, say the practice is acceptable or appropriate. So there are these areas in our life where the scriptures don't come right out and say you can or can't do it. And so this term Christian liberty, I think, can also be used to describe freedom in gray areas. So as I talk about Christian liberty 
in the, in the first century, it was freedom from the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. But I think also it can be used of freedom in these gray areas. However, I think sometimes Christians use the term inappropriate today. Sometimes we use Christian liberty in the wrong way. Uh, and we use it in places that are strictly forbidden in the scriptures. Okay, so for instance, I told you we would get more practical tonight. So sometimes Christians argue that watching a movie with swearing, crude language, and immoral scenes is a matter of Christian liberty. Have you ever heard anyone argue that way? Of course, it's never us, right? Hopefully not. Sometimes Christians will say, well, I've got the freedom, even if your conscience won't allow you to watch this stuff, I've got the freedom to do this, okay? However, what I want to argue here at the very beginning is that is a wrong or inappropriate use of the term Christian liberty, okay? And that's not what liberty was about. Liberty in the first century was freedom from the law, from meats or Sabbaths, and circumcision, or it might mean freedom in gray areas, but liberty never involves freedom to sin. Okay? It never involves freedom to sin. It did not in their setting, nor should it in our setting, ever speak of freedom to participate in something that the scriptures clearly condemn. Right? Like, watching a movie or meditating or participating on or thinking through scenes like are captured in some of the movies that we're describing here. I think a better place to deal with some of those issues would not be the liberty discussion. You know, what do I have the freedom to do? We like to deal with things in the liberty arena, but perhaps a better sphere of discussion would be to talk about some of those things in the holiness of God sphere. (laughs) Okay, so the question would be, not what do I have the freedom to do, but what does the holiness of God say about that type of movie with immoral scenes in it? I mean, how's it going to withstand over here? Okay, the problem is many of us don't like to talk about things over here, right? So a better place to talk about them would be in the holiness of God. A better passage, I think, that can help us with some of these things would be a passage like Romans chapter 6. Where Paul the Apostle asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers it for us, God forbid. God forbid. And so, uh, as we're making these definitions, I want to be very clear that Christian liberty should never be used as a license to do something, to watch something, or to engage in something that's clearly forbidden in the New Testament Scriptures. Let's not use liberty that way. It's not how it's intended. Okay, so now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8. Some of the Corinthians might ask this question. What is the big deal? It's just meat. Why can't I eat this? And fundamentally, they're right. This is not a sin issue. It's amoral. Sometimes I use the illustration. It's like one of my children coming up to me and asking me, uh, Dad, can I use a blue pen or a red pen for this assignment at school? You know, and I'm going to look at them and say, you know what, I don't really care. What's the difference between a blue pen or a red pen? I mean, you choose. You've got the freedom to do that, okay? And foundation, there's two different types of pen. Now, it could potentially be a little different if their teacher told them without me knowing, 
I never want you to use a red pen on any of your assignments. Okay, so what I'm going to argue here, 1 Corinthians 8, 8, at a fundamental level, Paul is dealing with an amoral issue. It's just me. Okay, but potentially, and this is my second point, and we'll spend the rest of the time this evening on this, potentially, this meat issue might become a sin issue. It could become a sin issue. And what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is I'd like to look at this text through the perspective of three different believers that I see in the text, okay? And so first, we'll talk about in verse 7. We'll look at verse 7. This is from the perspective of the weaker believer, okay? And the way this meets could become a sin issue for the weaker believer is this. If, if he or she goes against his conscience, then it is wrong for him. That's why I take verse 7. Look in your Bible at verse 7. The Bible says, However, not all of us possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Perhaps there was something in the past of the weaker brother or sister in the Lord at Corinth that kept him or her from being able to swallow the meat with a clear conscience. And perhaps this weaker believer here who thinks that it'd be wrong to eat the meat perhaps has some sort of history or bond, former bondage to idolatry and idol temples. And so in verse 7, some might eat the meat offered to idols, and as a result, the text says at the end of the verse, they would defile their weak conscience. We've got to look at that phrase for just a little bit. Defile their weak conscience. Now, the word conscience is a very interesting word in the New Testament. As far as I can tell, the word conscience is used 30 times in the New Testament. And if you were to ask me for a definition of it, my, my own definition from the New Testament is that the conscience is an internal witness given to us from God that testifies about the integrity of our actions. The conscience is an internal witness from God to us that testifies about the integrity of our actions. One of the interesting things you find as you go through the New Testament is Paul de describes the conscience in many different ways. The conscience can be good. You can have a good conscience, but the conscience can also be seared or hardened. The conscience can be weak. The conscience can be evil or be defiled. In some of those New Testament passages that I worked through, we learned that the conscience can proactively prompt us about whether something is right or wrong. Okay, so sometimes, you know, we, we kind of talk about, you, you know what I, can you, can you feel what I'm saying? Okay, sometimes the conscience can proactively prompt us about whether we should do something. Is it right or wrong? Other times in the New Testament, I see the conscience sometimes retroactively sending us intense feelings of guilt regarding our practice or our choice. You know, this is how we feel when our parents have told us not to do something, but we go ahead and do it anyway. You know, that like hot feeling that starts coming to you when you know you shouldn't be doing this. Your parents have told you. I think that's the promptings of conscience. Perhaps for believers, it could also be the Holy Spirit. 
It's also important to realize in the New Testament, I think it's clear that the conscience does not offer infallible guidance. Does not offer infallible guidance. There's a popular statement in, in America, and it's, it's been in existence at least since I was a boy, and that is, uh, you should let your conscience be your guide. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, what do you think about that biblically? Okay, that's, that's probably a problem, right? Because your conscience can be good, but it can be seared, it can be weak, it can be defiled, it can be evil. So the conscience is something God gives to us, but it can be corrupt, corrupt or it can be misinformed. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the conscience of the weak becomes defiled. I think a weak conscience, as Paul used it here, is a conscience uh, that is misinformed. And to have a misinformed conscience is one thing, but to have a defiled conscience is something far worse. Because a defiled conscience is one that is abused abused. And so in this scenario, the weaker brother continues in the practice and goes against the promptings of his conscience and sins. There's a parallel text that might help us here in Romans chapter 14. Paul talks about the person who keeps doing something even if if he doubts whether or not he should do it. In Romans 14, verse 22, this is a New King James. It says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. See that? He that doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, or whatever is not from faith is sin. Years ago when I was a teenager growing up, my mother had a saying that she would pull out and use on me often. She'd come up to me when I had questions about, Mom, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I go here? Can I watch this? Can I? And she would, she would make this statement. It was a very short statement. She'd say, Brent, if you doubt, don't. Okay. Brent, if you doubt, don't. Okay. Now, as a teenager, I thought she contrived that to keep me from ever doing anything fun or enjoyable. Okay. But the more I think about it, the more I, I believe that perhaps my mother had some sort of biblical warrant in that statement. And so from the perspective of the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians, uh, whether or not he should go into the idol, idol shop and, and eat this meat, uh, Paul, I think, would say, if you go against your conscience, the promptings of your conscience, it's telling you not to do it, and you do it anyway, you'll be abusing your conscience, and that is a problem. Now I want to look at this, per, this uh, text from the perspective of, of another believer found in verses 9 through 12. The perspective of what I'm going to call the stronger believer. And for the stronger believer, what this text teaches is that if I cause someone else to fall because of my liberty, then it is a sin for me. If I cause someone else to fall because of my Christian liberty, then it is a sin for me. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idle temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
the sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is a, a very clear teaching, although in some ways it's a bit complex. I think that at a foundational level, what Paul is telling the stronger believers in Corinth is you do not make your choices in a vacuum. You've got other considerations that you must consider when you think about whether or not you should go into an idol temple and eat idol meat. I mean, the strong must realize this. I think in verse 7, Paul says that not all men have knowledge that there's one God and the idols are nothing. I think the strong would boast that they're not superstitious weaklings. They know there's only one God, and so they know they can eat the meat. Paul's point in this text, however, is that the weak don't know that. Perhaps something because of their past or whatever, the weak don't share in this knowledge. And so Paul is proving in verses 9 through 12 that stronger believers must consider weaker believers, even in disputable issues. I mean, we must be sensitive to the previous lifestyles of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's part of being a healthy member in a healthy church. Think of what Robert Gramacki said years ago about this text. He said that mature believers must be aware that some regard certain amoral things to be sinful for them because of their past involvement in a sinful society. And Part of what I'm trying to demonstrate to you is that it's part of one of your responsibilities in this church to get to know other members, to understand them and their past and their history, and to never, never flaunt your Christian liberty in the face of someone who has a serious weakness in a particular area. So as we keep going down through here, we go to verse 9. Look at verse 9 in the text. In verse 9, Paul I like how he describes this liberty, this liberty of the Corinthians. He calls it this liberty of yours. I imagine that Paul is perhaps being a bit sarcastic here. This liberty of yours when he says um, that they're not, allowed, they're not to allow this liberty of, of yours to become a stumbling block to the weak. I think that Paul perhaps is, is, is demonstrating here that he does not align himself with the particular viewpoint of even the stronger believer per uh, per chance. I mean, I'd said earlier this morning that unless you hold your position in love, it's the wrong position. I mean, even if you know you have the right and the freedom, that doesn't mean you need to exercise it. And one of the things that would cause you not to exercise it would be becoming aware of a weakness in the life of another believer and limiting, limiting yourself for that intentionally. Then we look down at verses 10 and 11. I think Paul sets up a scenario in this text. This is how I imagine the scenario that he's describing here. There's a stronger brother who is eating at a table in an idle temple. Okay, so you imagine this. He's down in the streets of Corinth. He's in the idle temple. He's reclining a table, and he's got himself a cheap meal. That's all it is for him. I mean, this isn't worship for him. I know I'm surrounded by like all these false worshipers. I know they're, they're praying to some false god or whatever, but I just got like cheap food. 
And so he finds himself in the idol temple reclining, eating the meat. And then along comes the weaker brother. And the weaker brother comes along. And the weaker brother is not offended or uh, upset that the stronger brother's in the idol temple. I believe that this text is describing a scenario where he's actually intrigued by the freedom of the stronger brother. And so the weaker brother, who has a history with idolatry, actually goes into the temple himself, but he goes into his own ruin and destruction. If you look down in your Bibles in verse 11, and in this verse, Paul uses the word, it's translated in English, the ESV, with the word by. By your knowledge, this weaker person is destroyed. I think it could also be translated in. So while this may mean the knowledge of the stronger believer is the instrument that leads to the demise of the weaker believer in this situation, it's better perhaps to see this as uh, the knowledge is this, uh, could be translated as the sphere of influence here leads to the demise of the weaker believer. In other words, what I think is going on in verse 11 is the weaker brother attempts to share in the knowledge of the stronger believer is confident you can go in there and not be harmed. But the weaker brother cannot withstand the experience. He is surrounded by knowledge that he doesn't share. His conscience is telling him it's wrong. And then he's surrounded by all of the temptations to idolatry and immorality. Perhaps it's also often associated with that of Corinth, with that in Corinth. And the weaker brother, for him, this choice leads to ruin and destruction. But notice how Paul further describes this weaker brother in verse 11. Look down in your Bible at verse 11 again. And uh, he says there in verse 11, and so by your knowledge or in the sphere of your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. See how he describes him there? It's a very challenging description of the weaker believer. Sometimes I need to re- be reminded to love those who are, who are uh, in some ways, more conservative than myself. Okay, although that's not conservative, doesn't always mean weaker, of course. But there's sometimes I, I, I should be reminded to love people who disagree with me in matters. And this description is a great one. It says the weaker brother or sister here is the one for whom Christ died. If there was ever a person who could have asked, why should I bother in serving someone else? It was Jesus. Yet Christ loved your Christian brother or sister so much that he was willing to die for him or her. I think the point that Paul's making in this text is, if Jesus was willing to die for your weaker believer, shouldn't you be at least willing to consider them when you make choices in matters of Christian liberty? I like that description of the weaker believer here. And then in verse 12, as if, as if this message would not be clear enough, in verse 12, he makes one last point. When he declares that when you insist on your freedom, and that leads to your brother stumbling, notice what he says there in verse 12. You actually sin against your brother. You wound or bruise their weak conscience, and you sin against Christ. I've written here, this is like a double or a triple sin. When I insist on my freedom or liberty, knowing that it leads to the demise of another believer in Jesus Christ. It's a sin against them. I bru- bruise their weak conscience. 
and it's a sin against Jesus Christ. And so this is the perspective of this text from the stronger believer. If I insist on my freedom and it causes someone else to fall into sin, then it's wrong for me. There's one other perspective I want to look at this evening, and this is what I'd call the perspective of the strongest believer, verse 13. And from the strongest believer's perspective, it's uh, this. Uh, The strongest believer says, I know that I can exercise freedom, but I will not if my insistence on a freedom causes someone else to sin. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food make my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's picking up the pace here just a little bit. What I think is going on in the text, I see this text differently than some other people who uh, preach or teach on the text. When I look at this text, I see three different believers. Okay, so we're going to do a little quiz. Make sure you you follow along, you understand what we're saying. Okay, so what does the weaker believer say about idle meat? Does he say he can or cannot eat them? Just say something there. I, I know I can't do it. Okay, and then the second guy we looked at was verses 9 through 12 and the stronger believer. What does a stronger believer say about the meat? Can he eat it or not? Yeah, he says, I know I can. Okay, but the strongest believer, who's the strongest believer in verse 13 who's giving his own perspective? Paul the apostle. Paul the apostle is describing his own approach to weaker believers about idol meat and what's his response to the situation. I know I can, but I will not if it makes my brother sin. I will become a vegetarian if necessary if I know that it's going to lead to the spiritual demise of my brother or sister in the Lord. And Paul uses very strong language in verse 13 that's actually even hard to translate. He uses an emphatic negative. We translated something like this. Paul says he would never, never do something. He would never, never cause a brother to stumble. And so we work through the text. I mean, we're seeing Paul's attitude toward this. Okay, now what I want to do at the end here is I want to just talk and have a little bit of fun with this text as we think about our own lives. Okay. So, how does this principle make you feel? Okay, so the principle is the principle of love. And the idea that Paul's demonstrating is we must consider our weaker believers in the church when we make personal choices in regards to Christian liberty. I mean, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel any time someone is weaker forces you, forces you to submit to them. And one of the questions I want to consider here for a moment, and just take probably six or seven minutes to answer, and we'll be done, is does this mean that the weaker believer always wins? I said I've preached or taught through 1 Corinthians several times. This is the way people normally respond to this text. Yeah, Pastor Brent, but if you're right, and what you're saying is right, then that means we can never have any fun. Or that means this, that means the conservative people always win. They always win. Okay, is that what the text is saying? Or how do we handle this? And so I kind of want to work through this question and answer it. My my answer might actually uh, surprise some of you. Now to answer this question, what I'd like to do is I'd like to briefly compare this text to Romans chapter 14. Okay, so I've got it up here for sake of time. Uh, We can read it there. I'm going to turn around so I can see it well. Romans chapter 14 Verses 1 through 6. 
says, as for the one who's weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Okay, so in this text, Paul is laying out, I mean, there's some definite similarities between Romans 14 to 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. In both texts, you've got Paul the Apostle writing. He's writing within a year of, of, within a year of each other in these two epistles. He's addressing churches, and in those churches, he's got a weaker believer and a stronger believer, and there's a controversy about meat. Okay? So there are a lot of similarities between the two texts, but there are two or three differences I want you to see. The first difference between 1 Corinthians and Romans is there's a difference in the meat that is being considered. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, the meat that's on the table or that Paul is talking about is meat which had been formerly associated with an idol. It's idol meat, okay? However, in Romans, the meat is different. The meat is not idol meat. There's nothing about idolatry in the text of Romans 14 and 15. The meat is an argument over non-kosher foods, And this is one of the things you have to keep in mind. This is going to actually help answer our question in just a few minutes. In Romans 14 and 15, the debate is about whether or not believers could only eat kosher foods, you know, foods that were slaughtered according to proper Jewish ceremonial practices. One of the things that the book of Acts tells us is right before, a few years before Paul writes Romans there was an edict from a Roman emperor by the name of Claudius. And Claudius, in in 49 AD, gives this edict that all Jews would be removed from the church of Jerusalem, or from the city of Jerusalem. Sorry, city of Rome. City of Rome. And so for five or six years, all Jews are deported out of the city of Rome. And I'm going to argue that greatly affected the Roman church. I mean, how would this church change if for five or six years we got rid of a portion of the church, especially the ones who are most conservative? I mean, what would happen here? Okay, so in Rome, what happens right before Paul writes Romans is the Jewish believers come back in the church. And I imagine a few things happening like this. The Jewish believers come to celebrate Jesus Christ and they show up on the Sabbath. They show up for church on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And they look around and there's no one in the house church. What in the world's going on? And the Gentile believers say, yeah, you know, while, while you were gone, we, we quit doing that Sabbath thing. And, and the feast thing. I like uh, one of my friends says uh, the... The Jewish believers show up at the church potluck. Okay, now, we don't call it a potluck. They show up at the, what do we call them, a church fellowship meal. And they look at the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are eating a foreign substance they've never seen before. 
What is that? It's a ham sandwich. It's a ham sandwich. What do you make that from? From pig, from pork. Believers can't eat ham sandwiches. What are you doing? Okay, and so in Rome, the argument is over kosher and non-kosher foods. So the Gentiles would say something like, yeah, but all of the meat, the Jewish slaughterhouses were shut down for a few years. I mean, what were we supposed to do? So there's these argument over that kind of meat. The other difference in the text is, an, is the difference between the type of weaker believer you see. And this is key for the, answering the question I want to answer with you. In Romans, the weaker believer, in my opinion, is simply offended that any believer would feel that they don't need to worship on the Sabbath or uh, that, that they don't have to follow a, you know, the, the Jewish calendar. Or they're simply offended that any believer feels like they could eat meat that's not been slaughtered appropriately according to Jewish ceremonial rites. I, I like what Dr. Olala called him. He called the weaker brother in Rome, as he said, he's the ripped brother just mad. He's offended. They, they disagree theologically. But in Corinth, the weaker brother is different. The nature of the weaker brother is different. And this is a key point for us. In Corinth, the weaker brother is one who has a background in idolatry, and he's not offended or ripped. He's actually caused to stumble because of the freedom of the stronger believer. This is a different type of weaker believer. And the third difference, I think, follows. So Paul's Paul's argument, or the way he addresses a stronger believer is different in both cases. In Romans, he basically allows the stronger believer to maintain his position, but to do so as long as he doesn't judge, he also allows the weaker believer, feels like he needs to keep doing the Sabbaths and stuff, to, to maintain his position, okay? Whereas in Corinth, his response or expected response to the stronger believer is different, and that is this. You need, you need to consider your weaker brother. If this is going to cause him to fall into sin, you have an obligation. You have an obligation here to help them. So in 1 Corinthians 8, it is not that the weaker brother is offended offended at the audacity of the stronger believer, but he's intrigued by his freedom. He walks into the temple and says, wow, we can do this. Cool. But then he falls into ruin and destruction. He's weak. It's a susceptibility to idolatry. And so Paul says, you must consider him. And so as we try to answer the question I started with, I want to help you work through a very practical scenario. I'm going to take something that's a little less controversial and end with this, okay? So imagine a scenario where someone comes up to you and they say that they're offended at your freedom or your liberty in Christ or one of your practices. How should you respond? And uh, well, I'm going to use the illustration of women wearing pants because I think it's, it's not much of an issue in our church, uh, just as a matter of, of helping us kind of process through this. So if someone were to come up to me or to my wife and say, I'm offended that your wife is wearing pants, how should I respond? Well, first, I would counsel you. I've got five steps to, to working through this, and I think it's built off the differences in Romans 14 and 15. First, I would, I, I think it's very important in a, in a loving and teachable spirit to ask why. Why are you offended? Why are you offended at this practice? And then, following that up very quickly, ask them, well, what 
biblical reasons or principles do you have to demonstrate or show that women should never wear pants? Okay, and, and really listen to them. Let them explain from the scriptures, hopefully they've got a reason or two, from the scriptures why they think that women should never wear pants. Okay, but then three, what we need to do next is then we ask, do you mind if I share with you the biblical reasons that I have why it's appropriate for women to wear pants? And what does this imply, by the way? This actually implies that you have biblical reasons and that you've thought through it. And if in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you pay attention, there'll be six principles that you'll be able to learn. They'll help you. You say, you mind if I sit down with you now? I've listened to you. Do you mind if I sit down with you and I explain from the Bible why I think it can be appropriate for women to wear pants? And all along the way, the fourth step is this. I think that you need to determine the nature of the offense. Is the person simply irritated or ripped thinking, how in the world could any believer ever think this? Or is there something about the background or the experience of this person that if, if he was put in a position like this, it would cause him to fall into some sort of sin? That sort of person will have a really hard time in our culture today. But what I'm suggesting here is that we need to figure out the nature of the offense. And that leads to the fifth point. And this is uh, my own perspective. You could tear me apart after church if you want to do that. If my brother is simply offended that anyone would ever have the audacity of wearing pants, I think I can defer to him. I can always choose to defer to my weaker brother. But I think that Romans 14 and 15 would tell us that I don't have to accommodate him or her. In other words, I think we can agree to disagree. Here are my biblical principles. You've got yours, but I'm not detecting that this is going to lead you into some sort of sin. However, if my brother is caused to offend by my freedom, I don't care what it is. If this is going to lead to his moral demise or a downward step, or he's going to fall into some sort of sin because of his background or history, the past, then I've got a responsibility when I'm around him to help him in this way. So in this text, I think the point that we're asking is this. Do you love other believers in Jesus Christ in this way? Do you know your brothers and sisters in this church? I mean, this is not a country club. We all come with inherent weakness because of our past. Do you know other believers in this church well enough to be willing and able to sacrifice for them when necessary? And I'll end with this point. Jesus died for your weaker believer. Will you consider him when making personal choices? Let's go ahead and stand in a word of prayer, and I'll close us in this way. I knew I would go just a touch long this evening. Let's go ahead and stand, and I'll close us in a word of prayer. We can thank the Lord for what he's taught us this, this week and ask for his grace to help us love in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for your word. Lord, there's something in each one of our hearts that doesn't like to be told what to do by someone we deem as inferior to us. We don't believe this or understand this. We just look at uh, 
an older brother or sister being told what to do by a younger brother or sister. We just don't like being told what to do, being challenged by someone that we think is inferior to us. And yet in this text, we have the perfect example of Jesus Christ, who, though he never sinned, loved unconditionally. And he loved us in our sin, and he loved our weaker brothers and sisters in their sin. May Jesus' love and sacrifice point us to do the same. May we be willing to sacrifice for the spiritual good of another person in this church, especially if we know that our freedom would in some way lead them into sin. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. We pray that we would be Bible people, that we would love your word, and that we would allow the text of Scripture to control what we do and what we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.